Constitution. Well, my friend, it's gonna have to be. I'm here to tell you about the destruction of all the evil it will have to end. You're listening to Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis, In the second half of our show, we have an interview recorded with Jesse Wozniak, the author of Policing Iraq, Legitimacy, Democracy, and Empire in a Developing State. But first, we start with the news. The main news is that the United States government and ruling class continues to claim that it is fighting for equality and democracy on multiple fronts across the globe, and yet continues to erode fundamental human rights at home. According to Amnesty International, quote, access to safe abortion services is a human right. Under international human rights law, everyone has a right to life, right to health, and a right to be free from violence, discrimination, and torture or cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, end quote. And yet in the U.S., access to safe abortion services is under attack, as is the right to health access in general. Worldwide Socialist Feminist Struggle Needed for Abortion Rights is the title of an article on internationalsocialist.net, the website of International Socialist Alternative. The May 14th article in the subheading says, quote, The U.S., which has falsely claimed to wage war for women's rights across the globe, is now waging war on women within its own borders, a war that has consequences worldwide, end quote. The article says, The conservative right may feel strengthened in other countries to escalate feminist repression and encourages trade unions, feminists, LGBTQ orgs, and others across the globe to begin discussing the issues in communities and workplaces, saying, quote, We are socialist feminists precisely because we realize that capitalism has to be ended. In a democratic socialist society, the large economic resources are owned in common and invested first and foremost in social need welfare climate transition and combating poverty, directed to make sure that no gender is oppressed, that every person gets to decide over their bodies, that all children have a secure upbringing and a bright future, end quote. And struggles and demonstrations have broken out. Also on May 14th, Al Jazeera has a news article titled Thousands Rally Across U.S. to Safeguard Abortion Rights. The article says in the subheading, quote, protesters gathered in New York, Washington, Los Angeles, Austin, and Chicago, as well as at hundreds of smaller events, end quote. The article says, quote, the nationwide demonstrations on Saturday are a response to a leaked draft legal opinion showing the U.S. Supreme Court's conservative majority is considering overturning Roe v. Wade, a landmark 1973 ruling that guarantees abortion access nationwide, end quote. The article quotes one organizer as saying they are willing to do, quote, whatever it takes to protect reproductive rights. Left Voice has an article entitled Over 20,000 March in New York City for Abortion Rights. The article says, quote, This massive protest was part of the hashtag Bans Off Our Bodies nationwide day of action called for by the Women's March Foundation and Planned Parenthood. These nonprofits that are allied with the Democratic Party were forced into action due to the immense rage and desire to mobilize people all over the country, end quote. 
The article says other smaller, more radical demonstrations took place in other parts of New York. It also says spontaneous actions have sprung up all over the place, including at high schools and colleges, as well as at hospitals. Included in these demos, it says, are teachers, nurses, and other union workers and students. The article highlights additional conservative attacks on trans rights and makes clear that only a mass movement like that in Ireland and Argentina will finally win abortion rights. Abortion rights and reproductive rights advocates were not the only ones out in large demos recently, as nurses were also out on May 12th in D.C. and across the country. An article from that day on ABC7 News by Ida Domingo and Heather Graff is entitled, Spend the Day in My Shoes, Thousands of Nurses March in D.C. Calling for Change. Here's a clip from the video element of that report where nurse Tracy Jackson from Indiana talks about the current situation for nurses. We're all here with concerns of our patients' safety. Um, the ratios for our patients and our staff is ridiculous. They can't get the care that they deserve if we have 10 patients and it's one nurse. That article quotes another nurse saying, quote, we are the backbone of the healthcare system. If there were no nurses, there would not be a healthcare system at all, end quote. All this comes as, quote, U.S. COVID deaths hit 1 million, a death toll higher than any other country, end quote. That's the title of an article on The Guardian on May 15th by Jessica Glenza. The article also says, in bold, the, quote, virus has laid bare America's fragmented healthcare system and corrosive racial and socioeconomic inequalities, end quote. I'll say it again, U.S. healthcare is failing by many measures, all those outlined previously and more, to undo any of the policies and systems that have been created to continue moving healthcare in a failing direction. It will take all of us getting involved, finding common ground, and struggling for a better world. And now we go to a musical break with the song Captivity by the Dead Peppers out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. The song is from their 2016 album Alkaline. Here it is.
of our ability. We're back now. That song had a lot of uh, themes about low-wage workers, low-wage work. I definitely encourage everyone to go and also check out our special report on Amazon and Starbucks workers. And now we go to my interview on policing Iraq, legitimacy, democracy, and empire in a developing state. Here's that interview. On Socialist News and Views, we let people introduce themselves. So tell us who you are. Uh, yeah, so my name is Jesse Wozniak. I'm an associate professor of sociology and criminology at West Virginia University. Uh, I'm also on the leadership team of the Alliance for Police Accountability, which is a Pittsburgh-based uh, organization that does probably what you can guess from the uh, title of the organization. I actually met you here in Minnesota, and this is a local show, so you have some connection to Minnesota. You were in Minnesota for some time. Tell us about that. Indeed, yeah. So, uh, well, in addition to having a lot of family in Minnesota and spending part of my life growing up there, I got my degree from the University of Minnesota and was uh, quite active in the political scene in Minneapolis throughout the time I was there. And you published a book last year that took a lot of research. Tell us about the research and what you found that you put in the book. Yeah, so the book, uh, Policing Iraq, Legitimacy, Democracy, and Empire in a Developing State, get that title out there, University of California Press, available wherever fine books are sold. Um, so yeah, so the essence of the book really is looking at um, the reconstruction of the Iraqi police force, uh, but more specifically looking at what uh, the design of a police force could tell us about what a, a state looks like, what a government looks like. Um, so it, for my research, I've spent over gosh, about a decade now, um, going, going back and forth to Iraq on and off, sometimes living there for long stretches, longest stretches over there about six months, sometimes there for shorter visits. Um, but spending a significant amount of time uh, at things like police training centers, uh, at precincts, uh, all throughout the country, uh, at courthouses and things, uh, basically trying to get a, a sort of frontline view uh, of what it actually looks like, right? What, um, right? what we're actually training police to do, uh, what they actually are doing, uh, sort of what we, we want them to, to think or say versus what they're actually thinking and saying, and sort of looking at um, that on-the-ground reality of the day-to-day the -day life of what it looks like to be building a police force from scratch in a nation that's essentially building a completely new government from scratch. And what did you find as far as how they were setting up the uh, police force? And by they, we're talking about the U.S. government and the architects of the invasion of the country. Indeed, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it probably won't surprise anybody listening to this uh, that it, it, it's not going super great um, if they've paid any attention to the news. But I actually um, I actually like to push back against that framing because in the sense it's not going great and that the police force isn't very effective. Um, but as I kind of argue in the book, that I think if you pay attention is kind of by design uh, and that um, the, the ideas of sort of what would need to exist for a democratic police force, right? A, a, a police force that exists to, you know, at least in theory, ensure the rights of citizens, protect them from harm, you know, those sorts of uh, the kind of ideals that, that at least in theory, police are supposed to have within a democracy. Right. We know what those would require. Uh, and the people who, who led the invasion, who instituted this police force, did almost in every instance the exact opposite of what you would suggest in that situation uh, and what we know is necessary in those kind of situations. Because this is certainly not the first time that a police force has been reconstructed after a civil war or invasion or, or you know, in any other way that a government is being recreated. Uh, and so we know what works. We know what doesn't work. Uh, and basically all of that was ignored 
uh, for instead a sort of uh, insistence on, on Bush air priorities of, of their ideas of what government should look like and how it should operate. And then, of course, um, as the subtitle of the book implies, uh, being more about American interests in the region than about Iraqi interests. And one of those is um, if, if you want a strong uh, democracy, you'd need a police force that looks a certain way. Uh, if you want a client state that appears independent on paper but is not functionally in reality, then you want a police force that looks very different. Uh, and the police force they have constructed looks a lot more like the second one. Right. So, so not set up for stability, democracy, or any of those things you mentioned. And two terms used a lot in the book are neoliberalism and hegemony. Can you explain those terms and how they relate to the book? Yeah, so I'm going to guess, given the title of this podcast, some folks are probably already a little bit familiar with the concept of hegemony, right? But basically, um, what I'm drawing from here is uh, the works of Antonio Gramsci, the uh, Italian Marxist of the early uh, 20th century. Um, and he, he didn't create the term hegemony, but it was most sort of famous for popularizing it, right? And essentially, what we mean by hegemony is the sort of the term for how the ideas of a ruling class or would-be ruling class come to be seen as, as not only legitimate, but simply the way things are. Right. And so Gramsci primarily identifies two ways this happens. Um, and the first he calls spontaneous consent of the masses. And this is basically the idea that, it, it's sort of a tautology, but right, it's basically the idea that people who are in positions of power, well, they're in power because they're obviously supposed to be, right? They wouldn't be in power if they weren't supposed to be, right? So they're in power, they must be legitimate. Um, and I mean, of course, it's not quite that simple, but that often covers a lot of things. But so then the second mechanism Gramsci identified for maintaining hegemony, right, maintaining this, this unified rule is uh, what he called the apparatus of state coercive power. Um, so in other words, things like the police, courts, the other institutions of social control that step in sort of whenever hegemony is threatened, whether it's sort of like directly in the case of like radical social movements or even just indirectly like when, say, people commit crimes which disrupt the peaceable working order of capitalism. Um, and so essentially what Gramsci argues, right, is that when things are going well uh, in a capitalist hegemony, coercion is almost always kept out of sight. Uh, that by far capitalism prefers to operate on the idea of consent um, and, and the sort of various ways uh, in which they give people's consent, right? He famously called uh, the sort of superstructures of civil society, right? It's like religion, ideology, stuff like that. He called them the trench systems of modern warfare, uh, which I think is really kind of a great summation of his idea of how um, capitalism will always seek consent uh, before moving to, to direct coercion because direct coercion is, is too obvious. Uh, and so one of the reasons I focus on policing is because police are really that line between consent and coercion. Um, because even within police, right, a, a group that is explicitly coercive, right, they got guns and clubs and all that kind of thing. Uh, but even within policing, right, they still, at least putatively, attempt to control things through consent, right? Attempt to control things through the idea that people will follow what they say because they're supposed to. Um, so essentially, I argue, and it's kind of the whole the sort of uh, the through line of the book is that by being that line between consent and coercion, that as the police are, how they're being designed to look and act and operate will tell us so much more about what that government is doing, wants to be doing, uh, is seen as doing, uh, than things like the, the Constitution or, or, you know, laws on paper, which, which are important, but only exist in so much as these coercive institutions like police enforce them. So the other idea, neoliberalism, really kind of flows from this and that so um you know there's a lot of sort of different definitions of neoliberalism I mean, it's a big term that encompasses a lot 
if people are interested, David Harvey wrote a great book on it. Can't recommend it enough. Um, but sort of as I'm using it here, right, neoliberalism is just sort of a revival of the core concepts of like classic economic liberalism, which is centered on the absolute freedom of economic markets. And so the sort of central assumption of liberal economic theory is that peace and freedom will arise from unfettered markets, right? The idea that capitalism needs to be freed from constraints to supply people with the goods and services they need. Uh, and so importantly in that, neoliberalism sees the state as inherently predatory, right? That really the state can only ever interfere with markets. So you need it a little bit because you need somebody to give you cops and soldiers. Uh, I mean, you know, Milton Friedman, right? The, uh, the sort of architect of neoliberalism famously said that the state exists to supply the police and soldiers, but otherwise shouldn't exist. Um, and, and so, but you can already probably from this sort of quick uh, summation of that, see where the problem comes in then, right? Because if you have a group of people who are uh, ideologically committed to this sort of extreme and stark neoliberalism as the Bush administration was and the Obama administration followed. Um, well, when you try to create a state with an ideology that says the state is inherently predatory uh, and shouldn't be trusted, not too surprisingly, you don't create a very strong state. Um, but instead, rather, you create a state that is open for economic plunder, right? And indeed, uh, Iraq is now one of the most unregulated states in the world. Uh, that, however, uh, as opposed to sort of the public pronouncements of neoliberalism as a, a lack of regulations bringing, you know, foreign investment and capital and revitalization, um, what we instead see in Iraq is we also see most anywhere else. Neoliberalism is forcibly uh, instituted. You instead see uh, a massive explosion of inequality, uh, and, and sort of plundering of resources. And of course, this is, you know, notable in any nation, but especially notable in a nation like Iraq, where that moved from, you know, sort of the tight control of a, of a dictator uh, into a, basically an, an anarchic state with sort of, you know, no functional government for a significant period, uh, and the sort of obvious then blowback that caused by that. And this, this is the phrase, the invisible hand of the market doesn't work without the invisible fist, right? Exactly. Yes. And can this book or your research in general tell us anything about policing in America? Yeah. I mean, I, well, I think I would hope it tells us a lot about just policing in general. But one thing that I've been really thinking about recently um, is a lot of arguments in America over the idea of uh, reform versus abolition uh, when it comes to what to do with our policing. Uh, and one argument you see a lot of abolitionists make is that you can't reform a police institution um, that is designed to do the things that it's currently doing, right? That, that this sort of racialized uh, class violence is not an aberration of a police force um, acting outside of what it's supposed to do, but rather the American police doing exactly what they've been designed to do, that they were designed to be uh, uh, policing the lines of race and class, and that they are doing that is not a surprise, right? Uh, and so that's sort of one of the things I talk about in the last chapter of my book is, the sort of obvious question it, from, you know, work on a police force like in Iraq is people always say, like, well, what do we do to fix it? Um, how can we fix it? Uh, but sort of what I say there is like, well, there isn't really a fix. It's, it's doing exactly what it was designed to do, right? I mean, it looks, if you look at it from the assumption that they wanted a democratic police force that operates in the way that we would think a police force in a, a democratic state would operate, well, then, yeah, it's failing. But that was never the intention. Uh, the intention was that you would have a group of people um, who could potentially quell popular dissent. They are trained in the use of force. 
um, but are trained not at all in any concept of human or civil rights or what it means to be in a democracy. Um, and so the fact that these things are not happening is, is not an aberration, but is rather them sort of uh, operating exactly as they were designed to operate. Uh, and so in the question of what do you do about the police force in Iraq, if you want a functional democratic police force there, the, the sort of, I mean, it's a kind of dispiriting takeaway, but it is like you, you got to start over and you got to do it very differently. Uh, and I think you really see the same thing playing out in America, where uh, I think more and more people are realizing as they learn about the history of policing, where it has come from, why it's been instituted the way it has, what it has done. Uh, I think you, more and more people are starting to see that same uh, sort of conclusion, where if you want a police force that does again, all of the things that we would hope or like a police force in a democracy to do, you're pretty much going to need to tear it down and start over because this one isn't designed to do that. And you can't fix an institution that's working like it's supposed to be working. Exactly. It's working the way it's supposed to be working. So really, the only way uh, to make a big change is to change the societal relations that uh, are the underpinnings of the society as a whole. So or at least it, that's my opinion. Well, yeah, I mean, I would go with you, right? And, and the same thing, and, and it tie it back like, to my work, and it, it's really the same process, that, right? Like, uh, Iraq was designed by um, the American architects of the invasion to be this sort of marketplace um, that could be come in and plundered by the rest of the world. And really, the only thought given to politics was um, ensuring that people in control of the country would allow this to happen, right? Uh, so it's been designed to do that until you change it. Just like America's designed to have hierarchies of race and class. If you have a police force, they will defend that. Until you change those, you're going to continually get the same result. Right. And so when I read the book or when I actually set up this interview, I hadn't read the appendix yet. And I, I really liked and, and thought it was really interesting the concept you outlined there of Gonzo's sociology. Just wondering if you could touch on that briefly in comparison to how we practice that science these days. Yeah, thanks. I that's actually, in, uh, the appendix is uh, adapted from an article I wrote, which has to be the most sort of commented upon one I've ever had. So I'm, I'm glad to see it strikes a chord with people. Um, but I think one thing when I talk about it is that one of the things that motivated me in this research was actually seeing this process happen uh, in that there's, there's a lot of research people have done on this sort of post-conflict policing or the reconstruction of police forces, but pretty much all of it is done after the fact. Uh, and is done with like official top-down sort of um, resources and recordings of what happened, right? And those are two ways where you're obviously going to miss so much. Uh, and so a lot of what I wanted to do was actually go see this process in person. In fact, one of the things I've really sort of always uh, reminded of is, um, so there, there's this fellow, David Bailey, who's a, a big name in, in post-conflict police reconstruction. In fact, has worked with the American government in, in reconstructing police forces throughout the world. Is kind of seen as sort of one of the top scholars in this field. Uh, and he had a book about the reconstruction of the Iraqi police force. And there's a line in it where he's talking about like what theoretically happens during training. Uh, and then he has a throwaway line where he says like, well, of course, to know what's actually happening, you'd have to go there and witness it. But like, of course, since that's impossible, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, no, dude, it's it's extremely possible. You just hop on a plane and go check it out. Um, and, and so like that, what I'm talking about in the appendix is I think a lot of social scientific research, and I mean, there's all sorts of um, reasons this happens. I think a lot of them are sort of the same class-based reasons that ruin a lot of things, that a lot of people, by the time you get to a position where you can do research, um, you either had to come from a rather comfortable class position or have achieved one and aren't very interested in getting your hands dirty. Um, but so much research uh, is conducted like that, sort of from this remove uh, and sort of from this assumption that's what's being recorded and told is correct. Um, 
and sort of uh, uh, not being willing to go to the uncomfortable places or sort of less viewed places. And it, as a result, it kind of keeps a lot of um, voices, important voices out of these discussions, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not going to pretend like I'm speaking for the Iraqi people or am their voice or something like I'm not, you know, certainly nothing like that. But like, this is one of the very few uh, sort of research projects that ever been done like this that actually talks to those folks, right? That actually includes their perspective. So I'm certainly not going to be so like uh, vain as to claim like I'm fully representing their opinions and things like that. But just to bring those, but just to bring the actual people who are being affected to this into the discussion really shouldn't be seen as a radical form of research, but unfortunately is. Right. And you have certain privilege that the average person in Iraq may not have. And so you're using that privilege to the best of your ability. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really stuck out about this is because I've also done a lot of research on American police uh, with American police, like interviewing them, observing them and, and trying to get an American police officer to agree to an interview is like pulling teeth. And even if they sit down, they're not going to tell you much. Um, but one of the things I love about doing my research over in Iraq is there's very much an awareness amongst Iraqis that like People don't know them. People don't know their stories. People just maybe know them as like a news headline, but don't know them as human beings. And the number of people who would demand to be interviewed by me, and they'd be like, well, you interview that guy, come interview me. I got plenty of stuff to say. Or like, and you know, I would always, in, in a sort of fresh way, you know, assure them that this will be anonymous and it can't be traced. Like, no, put my name on it. I want people to know what I have to say, right? And that there's, um, you know, people want this story to be told. And so, I mean, I, I hope I've at least done them, them some justice in bringing that to, to a larger audience. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I really liked the book and article adapted for the appendix. Is there anything else you want to say about your research or the book or the situation in Iraq today? Um, I mean, well, I definitely want to say uh, buy my book. You know, I need those sweet uh, residuals. But uh, no, in all seriousness, I would say I think um, I, I think the strength of the book is even if you're not interested in policing, I, I think it gives you a, a sort of way to help understand uh, sort of how governmental power is enacted uh, and the, the sort of many different ways in which we'll have to attack it should we want to make things better, uh, whether you're looking at Iraq specifically or you're looking at the U.S. Or, or really any other nation in the world. I really appreciate your time, Jesse. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. This has been another edition of Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. 